When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Screen Talk. I'm Eric Cohn. I'm Ann Thompson. And and we've got plenty to discuss, as I know you're coming to New York to join me for the Tribeca Film Festival soon enough. But I got to tell you, for all the film items that we have on our agenda this week, really what I want to do is tell you that after all these years of forest fires wafting through L.A., I finally feel your pain because it got smoky up in here this past week. Um, and it looks uh, very apocalyptic. I'm still recovering. <laughs> very Blade Runner. It was very Blade Runner 2049. You know, Correct. the huge were very specifically Roger Deakins out my window uh, the other day. It but was how eerie. Did it feel to to walk around. I hope you're not running in it. No, no. Fortunately, I do have a treadmill in my building. Uh, it was very strange. You know, I, I think it kind of crept up on all of us that sense of something different in the air. You know, uh, someone mentioned to me something about, you know, for forest fires, and we've seen some dramatic sunsets in the past and things like that. But it was that campfire scent in the air when you went outside where you finally, you know, it was like you could tell. And then the media report started and then it really got thick and it was like, oh, this is not great. So that was a couple of days ago. That was, you know, middle of the early, early part of the week and Tuesday and then Wednesday, it wafted through again. And here was the opening night of Tribeca Film Festival right around the corner. So I started wondering, you know, are they going to postpone? I mean, we heard about Broadway shows shutting down. Jodie Comer, Jody Comer walked off her one woman stage 15 minutes into a she performance. She couldn't breathe. Poor and then woman. Hamilton postponed. So a lot of stuff started happening and it felt like you know, not COVID 2.0 per se, but a, that similar sort of vibe where it was suddenly like a public health emergency and everyone had to make these hard decisions in real time. So are you running around the city with a mask on? So, it, yeah, I mean, the irony is that everybody's busting out their COVID masks that they used to put on when they went inside and take off going outside. And now it's the other way around. And uh, and with respect to Tribeca, I mean, they're showing movies, right? So indoors, theoretically, is OK. Uh, so they went but on, I, they know, went on with their opening. They went on with the show. They had a a, a pre-show or a ceremony beforehand with the mayor Eric Adams, who of course you know is the person dealing with the whatever you want to call it a health crisis in the city, uh, and it, and still showed up to give a key to the city to Robert De Niro and announced <laughs> De Niro Con, which will celebrate his 80th birthday later this year. But you know what? Eric Adams likes to party. Nothing's going to keep him away from that. I'm not saying this is a good or bad thing, but he did it. So if the mayor did it, of course, the, the show is is on. And uh, and yeah, it happened. It was an opening night of, of Tribeca what did they show? Film Festival. It was a film called Kiss the Future, which actually had its world premiere in Berlin uh, in February. So this was, I, I suppose, the, the North American premiere and uh, produced by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Matt was there. Um, this is a documentary about when U2 basically helped raise awareness for Sarajevo in the 90s and incorporated a bunch of material into their live shows from people who were there. 
um and then all part of the uh building up of the u2 legacy that yes it's, I, it's very book, his show you know yes 100 percent. i mean it, it's it's very much this sort of celebratory thing i mean i i can tell you that a lot of people i saw at the after party really enjoyed watching the movie because it's it's a feel-good documentary and if you like you too and if you feel you know troubled by the state of the world today say what's going on in ukraine or whatever this this story of like a big rock band using its influence to actually affect change it is affecting it's just you know the, the filmmaking is it's pretty straightforward you know it'll, it'll have a good life on streaming i'm sure i can't imagine it being an awards player although i did see the Academy folks in, in the room scoping it out because they're in New York for the festival. Uh, but, you know, Tribeca usually opens with with crowd pleasing docs. And um, I had heard there had been some discussion that they were going to maybe have a performance afterwards because they, they like to have Whoa, that. Sort of thing. That would have been something. Not yeah. And I think the determination was because there is a wartime context, you know, having Bono march out with a guitar afterwards would might maybe not be the right kind of thing. So they didn't do that. They just had a, a party afterwards. And now we're into this festival and, and, and it's happening. I, I'm be curious to see, you know, how this, the smoke situation affects turnout for things. But it's always kind of a crapshoot with this festival in terms of turnout because there's a lot of different stuff happening. You know, they dropped the word film a couple of years ago, but it's still a film festival and it's got a lot of movies and a lot of them are not higher profile so it's always a challenge to figure out well, what are people actually going to take, take their time? So I, just like Sundance, I tend to pay attention to the docs. So that's where I'm focused. I, I'm I, I'm going to look at the league, you know, Sam Pollard's uh, movie about the Negro Leagues sure. and, and all the great players that came out of there and how they they moved into uh, the mainstream uh, baseball playing. But I, I'm fascinated by that kind of look at history. And, right. and uh, it's a part of the world that we don't get to see, um, you know, look under the hood and see what. Really yeah, always show up there. for Sam Pollard anyway. Yeah. I mean, he's a great yeah. director. I love that the MLK FBI film that he Absolutely. made. Absolutely. Um, there's a narrative feature I saw called The Line. It's a first time filmmaker named Ethan Berger. And apparently he's been working on this a long time, but it stars Alex Wolf, you know, from Hereditary. And so it's a really good performance, very intense story of uh, frat hazing, basically. And, uh, and oh, when dear. it goes too far. <laughs> yeah. What was interesting to me is Frederic Boyer, who's the artistic director who you know as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he was he said this was like the best American film that they had. And he's this great, you know, Frenchman uh, oh, yeah. who thinks about cinema in a very French sort of way. And the French love these stories of like the complexities of American society, you know, almost from an anthropological perspective. So I think that's what he was enjoying about this, like fairly unnerving story of frat life. I was just watching it. And I was like, I can't believe these things still exist. Uh, but it's a very well-directed movie and it's an acquisition title at the festival. It's got John Malkovich in, in a supporting role as a, as a professor at the school. And Denise Richards is is, is in it as, as his wife. And, and there's there are conversations about privilege and how they inform this system. And um, so it was, it was a good movie. Um, where it and goes from here, I don't know. That's you know, the thing about Tribeca. It's almost like... Uh, you know, it, it's a, it's 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 like I don't know. I hate to say it. It's almost B tier. You know, you you just don't know if if there's going to be a breakout that's going to hit in a big way. Like I saw something called the Gullspang Miracle, another doc uh, from Norway and Sweden, and it's 
it's a first time filmmaker and it's, it's nothing I would make any claims about in terms of some kind of, you know, awards contention, but it's a fascinating family mystery unraveling about twins. And I think people are always interested in twins and what happens. And in, in, in there's a, there's a reason why these two twins were separated, but one died and one lived. And that woman goes back and meets the whole other part of her family that she sounds like a bit of a three identical strangers vibe. Exactly. It's not on that level at all, but it's fascinating. Nonetheless, Mm. just the human dynamics of it. Well, you feel for this uh, woman. Yeah, that sounds actually that makes me want to uh, scope it out. Frederick was really high on the rock uh, Hudson dock, rock that heaven allowed. Um, so, so I'm definitely going to try to see that one. Um, but yeah, it's, it's going to be an interesting, uh, time, you know, digging through this, this lineup. I mean, it's, it's, I always find Tribeca challenging as well because it's a big festival of new movies and I live here. So it's like, if I was in Sundance or in Cannes, you know, you're in festival. Yeah, exactly. So I, so I got to pick my moments in a way, <laughs> to go to brave yeah. the smoke, although it seems to be blowing no, I'm away coming now. to New York to see uh, to see the flash. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. that's what's going on. You know, I'm not uh, uh, there's a screening of Elemental. Yep. There's a screening of the flash. We'll see what happens. Yeah, exactly. So meanwhile, last week we, we talked a bit about Spider-Verse opening and past lives opening and Oscar season starting of sorts with, sort the, of. with those. Yeah. No, um, the, point, the point with past lives is that it, it's so good and it, and it has such a an imprimatur as the best movie of the year so far. That's what everybody keeps sort of claiming. And they're right. It is. It's extraordinary. And and I think it will. Uh, but a limited opening is a limited opening. It's easy to get high numbers there. Sure. It's when it goes wide that the truth will be told. Yeah. And that's a tough wide release film any, any way you slice it. You know, but I mean, it's not some time, but but still, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's a tough one. It's not both afraid. That's I mean, what happened with all those Oscar movies last year, they, yeah. they hung out in limited and did okay, and then yeah. when they went wider, they didn't sustain. Yeah, they had it has to be a slow rollout with you know constant um excitement where where it lands. I mean, the thing is like a twenty four with Bo is afraid that was never going to go wide and succeed because not only was it, you know, a crazy movie, it divided people. It didn't get like unanimous critical approval or whatever. Past lives, it has to be this sort of delicate gem that continuously gets discovered as it travels around, you know, whereas like Spider-Verse, that's like a, an easy one. It just landed and everyone was excited. Well, the, the, the trick on that, what I found interesting about that was that the tracking was inaccurate. So there's a lot uh, with animated films with, family films. That's often true that tracking doesn't tell the tale. So they were underestimating how well it was going to do. And then it was again, the word of mouth on it was that it was the best thing to come in a long time. It was even better than the original. And it is, it's fantastic. It's, yeah, I I recommend it. I'll be curious to see if, I mean, the middle movie of a trilogy ends up having the same sort of awards traction for the best animated oh, feature. Oh, it will. It could win. Movie. It could win animated feature again. I have I don't see a problem with that. You know um, something but I haven't seen Elemental yet. Yeah, that's right. You gotta see that one. But then there's also um a dark I wanna say a dark horse, but it was an interesting discovery out of Cannes this year that Neon picked up for a million dollars. Small too robot little, dreams. Too unimpressive in terms of the actual uh 
compare compare robot dreams just in terms of the scale and scope to Spider-Verse. You can't. I mean, there's well, no it's just not a, I'm just saying it's it's not it's, a sequel or something. Maybe there is a knock. It's a lovely movie. movie. I want I hope people they're also both it. New York films. They're both it's a great lovely mo- I'm very fond of that movie, <laughs> but there's no comparison. Well, that'll be a fun one to argue about. We'll see how that that field shapes up. And then speaking. Yeah. And then the other one that, that you wrote about this week, and we talked a bit about this. It's still around the corner. Asteroid City opens next week. But there is this really interesting question of, you know, how it deals, how well, it that's the one more than past lives that's perceived as a possible commercial breakout. And, you know, Wes Anderson has had hugely commercial movies in the past, like the Grand Budapest Hotel and, and Moonrise Kingdom did okay too. And and Budapest was the big Oscar contender that boosted its 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 numbers over time. It lasted, it opened in the in the early part of the year and lasted all the way through award season. Mm-hmm. And it ended up winning four craft Oscars. It got nominated for picture and director and everything. But uh, in screenplay. But this one, it's a big question mark. It's a comedy. It's incredibly fun and accessible. But there are people who love Wes, people who don't love Wes. Sure. The question of who's going to show up in the theaters, the distributors spoke to me and said, this is the canary in the coal mine. This is the one that's going to tell us if they're going to come back because it's a fun movie. It's a lot of fun. You know, the thing that's interesting about it is that it's hard to explain it to people, like yeah. what it is. You kind of have to experience it to know what it is. Like if you see that the could trailer, be an asset that could make people curious to see it. I um, since we spoke last week, I got this book in the mail in the mail uh, called Do Not Destruct that was created with um, Jake Perlin, who's his curator. He was a, used to be the, the artistic director for the Metrograph and he's close with Wes Anderson. And he does this whole interview with him in the book. Uh, which is also a collection of different sources that inspired the movie. And you can tell what they're doing, putting this thing out there. It's 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 out there to help explain what Wes is doing, playing with 50s Americana, as well as, you know. So he's got uh, uh, a Bad Day at Black Rock, I believe, is one of the films that he yeah. was inspired by. Right? And a lot of a Marilyn Monroe stuff, obviously, with Scarlett Johansson's character. And so there's like the photos, of her, you know, photos of her on the Misfits or in the book and stuff like that. So it's. You know, it's about sort of getting people on board with this very layered approach that's both about the history of the country, but also the history of storytelling in the country. And it's still very Wes Anderson, so you got to be on that wavelength. So I don't know. It's a, but it's, it's, a big not, it's not intellectually challenging. It's just, you have to pay attention. You have to pay attention to the windows, the framing, the devices, right. the way that he goes from one space to another, which is really fun. But but at this and he's and he's just having fun with it. That's the thing. Someone like Scarlett Johansson in this movie is just hilarious and delightful and and really good at what she does. But at the same time, none of those people are going to be Oscar contenders because there's too many of them and they don't have enough time. So speaking of uh, upcoming releases that may or may not be Oscar contenders, you finally got a chance to catch up on Indiana Jones. I've been dying this is to not talk an to you Oscar about that contender. one. You don't think Harrison Ford is I, finally going to put him on the I am the top? original. I remember, I remember seeing Raiders of the Lost Ark in a screening room at Paramount Pictures in New York when the big... Gulf and Western building was there on 59th Street in Broadway. The first shot of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And it was incredible to see that movie because he Spielberg and 
in Lawrence Kasdan and and they 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 reinvented something. They they took an old form and made it new. And yeah. the problem now is the challenge for someone like James Mangold taking over from Spielberg after all these movies after after four movies. He is actually tasked with keeping something very old fashioned that is very old now, really. Right. It's and a, a little formula crusty, that sort of, you know, lingered, how yeah. do you keep it fresh? So I think he did as good a job as anybody who wasn't Spielberg could right. do. And, yeah. You know, at the same time that you are going through one chase scene after another well the there point are a of lot of chase yeah. scenes well the point of comparison i made uh earlier i think when david and i did screen talk at can is like it reminded me a bit of these the, the star wars re reboot sequel whatever you requel i don't know what the term is for force awakens where it's like you've been here before and it's being designed to satisfy that desire to go back to that place absolutely it's not trying to, be to do the nostalgia thing that jj abrams was capable of, right. of doing and there's right. a moment i won't spoil where harrison ford as indiana jones is reunited with a character from the old or a couple places where he gets to see people yeah, that were in the callbacks. old films and and they're wonderful and you respond you to feel them the, you could feel the pause for applause right you heard it you in the, feel the affection and... that has been built up for these people you feel the affection that's been built up for Indiana Jones. The trick there too was I see what they were trying to do um, with Phoebe Waller-Bridge and it was a very tricky thing to pull off. What it's she interesting had to do. seeing her, her in this role because she hasn't really had a prominent role since Fleabag and it's it's I mean outside of the fact that she's like still sarcastic and, and funny it's and athletic and she's like Indiana Jones. She's 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 you know she punches people and does stunts and and steals cars and drives and you know they they modernize the, the by the way Marion Ravenwood was always a modern woman yeah they, she really deserved a spin-off of her own or something I think so yeah I always well. loved Karen Allen I always loved her to death yeah, well, she's still but, around. But this is so. This is really fun. I think people will enjoy it. At the same time that the critics have reasons for, for having, you know, uh, certainly plenty of reasons for having doubts about it. That's what I came out of Cam feeling like it was sort of the inverse of you know when Crystal Skull premiered at Cannes. I think the critics were actually kind, relatively kind to it because of the Spielberg factor, but the fans really revolted against that movie. And this one. Not so much. I feel like it's the, it's the critics well, were it's tracking and, to open yeah. at about something like $70 million. Respectable, not not super over the top. Uh, it just feels like it's going to be an older audience that goes to this movie, that that's the target audience, the people who grew up on on the Indiana Jones movies. Are you the target audience for this? Well, movie? I, I grew up on those movies. I mean, you know, it was sort of like it, it was in some ways it was like your first for a lot of people of my generation your first like cinematic experience was was going through this franchise um because the first one is it's such great filmmaking in particular so i i think that the appeal probably goes through you know the older millennial side of things i think the so gen z not so much i'm sure i agree it's i, I think Marvel. you're the you're at the younger end i, I would say people off. in their 30s are are the the younger end of this of the demo. Um, by the way, Harrison Ford is extraordinarily good. And I didn't have any trouble at all with the de-aging. And I'm very picky about that stuff. I am well, very, very, very good. aware of VF, of what goes on with CGI. It's gotten very effects. good. And 
the other part places of it where you catch a bad tooth or something on the side. But for the most part, it's, much. it's good. Well, I mean, so at the Cam Press conference, he talked about this because I mean, it's not the whole movie. It's like the first big passage. It, the movie, movie starts but, with young Indiana. Yeah. Jones. But but they had Lucasfilm had decades of footage of Harrison Ford throughout the years to draw from. So it's about as good as it can be right now in terms you of what tell they, they used his with. real body too. Yeah, the them. one I can't, thing that I I can't I, I I doubt that they used his real body all the time, but enough so that you bought it. Yeah, I mean the one thing that tripped me up it wasn't it wasn't teeth, it was the voice. I think the voice is less convincing than the you face. You had to buy it. There. You had to buy old Harrison Ford voice. Yeah, it's interesting though because I happened to talk to to Frank Marshall this week about because he's coming to Tribeca with this doc uh, that he directed ra- about Dan Rather. And, and produce the movie, obviously. And he was saying, like, because they had so much material to work with, this is not some new normal that people should be panicking about. You know, and I know we want to talk about the, you know, SAG strike prospects and all that kind of stuff. I think it's worth looking at that. It's like there is That's a real issue. fear That's that real this could issue. happen all the time now. The whole idea that actors could be replaced um, by digital uh, actors is is a real issue. And it's interesting how they're... Um, proposing to deal with that it's it's fascinating they have to get permission they have to know when their likeness is going to be used it's a it's a whole thing yeah i'll be curious to see how that plays out so it's been an interesting week for strike stuff because the dga voted uh in favor of um uh, a new contract they haven't voted on it yet but they 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 approved it will vote on it soon yeah so so that was, I mean, you and others had said, you know, that was pretty likely to happen. The DGA doesn't usually go on strike. They want to strike for like a few hours, like 40 years ago or whatever. It's but easier it's to make them happy. It's easier. It just is. And, and, and everybody came out ahead. There was an interesting thing on Twitter this morning with Larry Charles, who's a writer director explaining why yeah. uh, he didn't, uh, he did not vote. Yes. He voted no in support of his writer buddies. He's a writer first. It's going to go through. It's not going to be there's yeah, a, there isn't going to be a huge movement there. They're going to go with what's good for good for them. The question is what the actors are going to do and how far the AMT PTP is going to go to make the actors happy. Well, it's I mean, the WGA response to the DGA this, uh, negotiation with the studios was very, very negative, you know, like that there was no solidarity that, you know, it seemed like it was sort of using the 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 labor tactics of the WGA to leverage a uh, uh, opportunity for They've a done deal. this before where they, they divided, they stopped talking to the writers, right? They, yeah. uh, they abandoned they ship off. in order yeah. to go make a deal with the directors. That's basically what they did. Yeah. And they're probably planning to make a deal with the actors too, and force the writers to capitulate and compromise. And that's, that's what they've done all along yeah. and they're going to do it again. I was talking to a prominent actor actually earlier today who, who was asking me if I thought this, you know, the SAG was going to go on strike. And he was saying, you know, before I would have said, yes, it's definitely going to happen because the strike authorization vote passed. It but was, now posted, it was very high. The percentage it was very high, like 97 points. Really but but now with the DGA deal, it's like maybe it maybe it won't. There's there's some sense of, well, maybe they'll figure something out here. So I. I don't know. I mean, I none of these people want to go on strike because now nobody's going to. I mean, if they're after strike. Really, nothing, no, nothing happens. happens. Nothing happens. The producers characterize the writers as being very hawkish 
in their negotiation um, approach. Yeah. And this is always true. This has been true from time immemorial. But but the the question, you know, it, it, it's going to be this way, likely that that they, the directors have their deal. Maybe the actors make their deal. The writers will have to see what they did, see if they can make a piece with those the same deals or how they can improve on them for themselves. But they're not going to get everything they want. They just aren't. And they're going to have to come around to that eventually. And the, and the, the tone with the writers has, has been much more extreme in public, obviously, because of the picket lines, because you have a lot of people at the lower end of the totem pole uh, fighting, you know, all these stories of, of people, you know, driving Ubers and so forth to get by. And the, the conversation about the economy of, of being a writer now is so much more extreme than it is around these other guilds. But this is true across the industry, and that's what's so interesting about it, because you can't return to an old economy that no longer exists. There is no more 22-episode NBC series. You know, those things are are rare now. And and so the the uh the reality of the real world has to impinge on what and what's going to happen. And the um story that Joe Adalian and another writer put into um uh, Vulture, I call it Vulture, you call it New York Magazine. It's a, it's an extraordinary piece of reporting which I highly recommend everybody look at because it's something that reflects months and months and months of work. They really draw a picture of the new economy the streaming economy, and they show what happened, how it started here, how it went here during the pandemic, how it uh, peak TV happened, how it came back, how it's pulled back, how it's constricting now, and where it's going to be going, you know, after these strikes. And it's not a pretty picture. It's it's not going to be as much employment. It's it's going to be fewer films, fewer TV shows. Yeah, it's not there a were lot too many. of work I mean, it did, yeah, it did for people. Over. So it's not it's it's a it's a you know sort of a a reality check at a time when advertising is falling everywhere yeah. across the board and yeah. and layoffs at places like uh, the LA Times, which just laid off seventy four people. And 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 the studios too. I mean, Disney laid off bigger 7, numbers. Yeah. So yeah. So it's all across the board. There are these adjustments taking place. Yeah, I was thinking about this, and we were going to talk about the Idol, and the Idol, you know, had posted these numbers for the premiere, which had all this noise around it. You know, we I saw it for two episodes at Cannes, and there was all this noise going into Cannes, and then it, it you know, less than a million people watched the first episode, and there's only five episodes, but there's this interesting question with the show like this of like, does do the ratings really make that much of a difference or does it accrue value over time? It's a subscriber like, it's really hard base, to know. HBO, remember, yeah. you know, that's, it's always about that. You know, the, the, it, it isn't so much about the ratings, but you want to do, you want to do well. If it starts at a low point, is it going to grow? Okay. So I watched one episode. You saw two, right? Two, yeah. I although can. they were sort of stitched together as a single thing, but there was a, there was a title credit when the second one started. So I kind of know where, where one ends. So I'm, a, I'm a euphoria fan and sam levinson is actually adept you know he's a good writer yes. he's a good director it's well made. the internet hates him but he is not untalented Let's no he is good that, i but... i actually fell for malcolm and marie you know i i, oh, I liked God. that you know other people didn't so this and is it's... you know i watched it with a great deal of interest yes there's a very distinct male gaze you know you are ogling this woman but that's the point she's supposed to be an object of desire that is her that is who she is that is what she represents 
And um, and so the question going forward, I, I can't tell yet, is whether The weekend carries that character that he's playing, because he just very quickly uh, introduced in the first. Episode. Yeah, so he's so he's this character, Tedros, who uh, Lily Rose Depp's pop star character meets at, at a nightclub and he like kind of infiltrates her life and is sort of this cultish character. And, and what you learn without spoiling a ton in the second episode is that he, his um his origins are very questionable. It's not really clear who this guy is. And he has this whole entourage that kind of moves with him. And, you know, she is very much this character who's attracted to danger. She's recovering from a mental illness and the loss of her mother and and something about the the questions around him are are actually attractive, like arousing to her. And and so it's setting us up for that. But then also- Interesting in the first episode though, like he, 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 he's a little bit- um, he has a rat tail. She sees him. She, she sees him that. as lower level, you know, yes. low life. She sees him as as scruffy, I think. And he he is anxious about making a good appearance. He's he's I mean, it isn't just that he's calculating how to make a good appearance, which is part of it. But there seemed yes. to be real anxiety there also. Yeah. And, and well, the way that the weekend uh, able test fades, it's talked about this is that it's like this idea of, you know, somebody like him who didn't get the gratification of success, you know, and and so he's he's sort of this this villainous character who's trying to exploit her success to realize so what he's he a Spengali. Yeah, I suppose so. The my real question with it, because I've seen two episodes and, and I'm I would like to see the rest, is what what the payoff is gonna be here. You know, it does he become more sympathetic or is he truly the villain and gonna eat it at the end somehow? You know, does Lily Rose Depp's character get a kind of empowerment that we haven't seen yet? Because that's really where the backlash I think is coming from on top of the male gay stuff is like whose side is this show on? It so. does. The good thing about Sam Levinson is that he does give some indication that there's an intelligence there with Lily Rice. Yeah. He, it isn't an entirely shallow uh, portrayal. There's there's she has words. She has thoughts. There's a part where she's talking to the um, Vanity Fair writer who's who who was good. Played also. by Harry Neff. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and so that was that that was an interesting conversation. You know, I mean, at least we're not dealing with a complete bimbo here. No, the show is very self-aware about how people may have issues with it. And of course, that itself allows people to have issues with it. So it's like layer upon layer. And, you know, I can't keep track of all this stuff, but watching the show did make me want to see where it goes. So I will keep watching. I assume you're going to continue to plug I in. I think I will. Yeah, no, yeah. there was a scene. There's some, you're right, because there was a scene where all the grownups, all the, the manager, the 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 PR guy, I always love Jane Adams, you know, all, all of these people Jane are Adams, watching. Hank Azaria, Thank you. Eli Roth. He's hilarious. He's hilarious. Yeah. So I was, I was amused by them. They're all up on a balcony looking down on this dance sequence, which very provocative, uh, sexy dance sequence. You're right. He's playing around with the voyeuristic aspects of this. So to be continued on that front. Meanwhile, um, we've got some big movies around the corner. So next week we get to do our Screen Talk Live edition at, at Tribeca for the. And first we'll talk time about the Flash years. then. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited for that. So that is next Thursday at four o'clock p.m. Eastern. And if people are in New York, they should come. Uh, I think tickets are free online, and and you could see on our our social where to where to do that and ping us if you have any questions. But it's always fun to have you. And the first time we did this was on on the rooftop at Tribeca. That in was 2020. so fun. 
It was like yeah. right at the, you know, the first time that all people were actually doing stuff in the in the COVID era, as it were. So it'll be nice to come back under under newer conditions. And I, and I think the smoke will clear up for you, Anne. I have like, maybe I hope maybe so. Can help us out <laughs> I'm bringing that. my masks. All right. <laughs> all right. I have travels. some leftovers. Oh, good. Okay. See you all soon. Right. See you Bye. then.